0: So happy Father's Day, um, Father's Day 2017. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. And as you get it, stand at your feet. Let's read the whole chapter together, and then I'll have you seated. So nothing of a title outside of a Father's Day message for 2017. So again, we'll read Luke, chapter 7, 15, together, Luke chapter 15. Luke, I am your father. <laughs> Stand to your feet when you get it. That lets me know you got it. Luke chapter 15. If you got it. Luke chapter 15. All right, the Bible says, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man received sinners I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost." Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living." Have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and they began to be merry now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound your father has fit, killed the fatted calf but he was angry and would not go in therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you, I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, you, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should be merry, or we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Father, we thank you for the picture of your love within the pages of Scripture. And we pray, Father, this morning that you would speak to us through your word, that as we would see just the heart of our Heavenly Father that we would run to you at all times, Lord, that we wouldn't hold back, that we wouldn't be scared or fearful of your reaction. And so thank you so much for your word, Lord, and bless this time that we have together as we ask that you open up our eyes, open up our ears to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. You could be seated. And so a neat little account here that Jesus is sharing. And remember, if you were to look at the context of what it is we're looking at, in verse 1, there's this thing where all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. And the response, the reaction of the Pharisees and scribes is to complain, saying that this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus says that he's going to share this parable to them. He doesn't say he's going to share three parables with them. He says he's going to share this parable to them. And so you have in the first part of the parable, lost sheep, and a picture of Jesus carrying that sheep on his shoulders. We've seen the picture, right? He rejoices with finding the lost sheep. In the second part of the parable, you see the Holy Spirit uh, depicted in the woman where a light is turned on to seek that which was lost the coin in the first one you have one out of a hundred loss in the second one you have one out of ten so you go from one percent to ten percent and that's our picture of our relationship with the holy spirit as the holy spirit is illuminating things lighting things up for us and not content until we are back home where we belong And then in the third part of the story, you see the parable of the prodigal son is what we call it, right? But you have two sons and this father, and you see the heart of the father. On Father's Day, you know that we have various relationships with God, and one of them is depicted as a son or a daughter and a child, or a a child and a father, And so with that, sometimes as I think about this relationship with the Father, um, I know that individuals struggle because we relate, unfortunately, our relationship with our Heavenly Father, oftentimes with our Earthly Father. And every single Earthly Father has been less than perfect. Some of us have a good relationship with our Father. Some of us have a great relationship with our Father. But unfortunately some of us are at odds with our father, our earthly father as it relates to that relationship. And so oftentimes there's a block, there's a hindrance, there's something that keeps us from uh, wanting to go into that relationship. And I guarantee you that many, many of our struggles on earth can relate to that difficulty in relating to our perfectly Heavenly Father either either we didn't receive the approval of our earthly father and we think that it's through approval that we can gain a relationship with our heavenly father or there was abuse that took place and we just we shriek back at the idea of a relationship with the heavenly father or there's an imperfection there and somehow we think well maybe God the father doesn't have it all figured out like my earthly father doesn't have it all figured out but again that's a a barrier to relating to God. And so, as we go through this section of Scripture, I find it interesting because the religious leaders that were supposed to be those who would represent God to the people were missing it. The Pharisees and the scribes that are mentioned here would be a group of individuals who in 400 years of silence 400 years from the last prophet Malachi, before John the Baptist would come on the scene, this group would raise up these religious groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Scribes were the copyists of the laws. They were the individuals that took incredible uh, just detail in making sure that God's word was properly uh, copied to us. And they were the lawyers in (laughs) that environment. And so they were the legalists, the individuals that made sure that everything was done in an appropriate way. The Pharisees were the conservative group of Judaism, that group of leaders, again, formed in that 400 years of silence, and then the Sadducees would be a little more on the liberal side, but nonetheless, again, religious leaders in the first century. Of all of these groups, when they started out, their heart was right, right? Their intentions were good. They wanted to separate themselves from the culture to get to know God on a better level, to relate to God as best as they could. And so in that pharisee separatists, they started out well, but somewhere, some way, somehow they lost their way and they lost relating to God and they lost the heart of God. And I I think of how we as Christians, as we as religious people in this culture, unfortunately, man, we've, we've gone that way as well. How was Jesus able to relate to sinners in his culture, standing for truth, sharing the love of God, but yet somehow the sinners, the tax collectors, were coming to him and wanted to hear what he had to say? And I can't help but think that it's compassion, It's truly knowing his father. And so if we struggle with an ability to relate to people in our culture, it's not because God doesn't want us to relate to people in our culture. He doesn't want us to be lights to them. Of course he wants all of those things. Have we gone to the arena of the religious religious leaders in an an inability to be able to have them want to spend time with us? For me, I think, in the struggle, because it's a struggle, for me in the struggle, I think it's sometimes because I'm trying to separate myself from the world and I'm, I'm maybe a little scared and intimidated that I'll go back to the world and the things of the world. And so wanting to be separate, as it says in the Bible, come out from amongst them and be ye separate, says the Lord, I think sometimes it's through my weakness, it's through my insecurity, it's through my misunderstanding of who my Heavenly Father is and how He wants to use me to be able to relate relate, and to be able to reach out to people in the culture. And so I want to encourage you that to the degree that you get to know the nature of your heavenly father is the degree that God can use you in this world to reach out to people that he wants you to be able to reach for his glory. So again in verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, To hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So it was understood in the first century, somehow mystically, that when you broke bread with people, you were becoming one with them. The the word in the Greek would be koinonia. We get our English word fellowship from that word. And so, in having fellowship and eating with sinners, they believe that because that loaf of bread was baked from the same flour and water, mixed, and, and there was this mystical thing taking place. They would break pieces off, and they would dip it in the same dips that they would be eating, and so somehow, mystically, they were becoming one with one another, and and in a sense, there is koinonia in eating, right? Breaking bread with people, fellowshipping with one another, but I think it's deeper than... Bread dipping in sauces and somehow that bread that you ate was the same loaf and we're mystically becoming one. I think it's just hanging out with people, right? Communing with people, being able to relate to people. And somehow food brings down, you know, all of the tension that there may be. And so we're able to have a conversation and a relationship and be able to just relate to one another. But Jesus is eating with sinners and he's eating with tax collectors And the Pharisees scratching their head like, whoa, 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 what's he doing? (laughs) Doesn't he know that he's going to become one with these sinners? Doesn't he know that he's going to... And and, and unfortunately, they were just simply what? They were off. They were wrong in their understanding of what eating with people meant and what it was about. And so notice verse 3. So he spoke this parable to them saying and so it's 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 a parable it's one parable and a parable is a heavenly truth with an earthly story or an earthly yeah yeah heavenly truth with an earthly story so he's taking things that they would relate to things that they would understand things that they would be able to make a note of and in verse four he says if um, he loses one of them in reference to the sheep it's not hard to lose a sheep Sheep, in case you don't know, are not the smartest of animals within the animal kingdom. Let me read this to you. Isn't it, it isn't strange that a sheep would be lost, Clark writes. No creature stays more e- uh, strays more easily than a sheep. None is more heedless and none so incapable of finding its way back to the flock. When once gone astray, it will bleat for the flock and still run on in an opposite direction to the place where the flock is this I have often noticed again writes Clark and so for this sheep to be lost it's not a hard thing to picture in verse 5 he says that he rejoices when Jesus carries us he rejoices when he goes out and finds leaving the 99 in the safety of the corral. And when we're going off, when we're uh, uh, off track, off base, he's not shaking his head. He's not wagging his finger. His, His eyebrows aren't touching. He goes out and he seeks after us wherever we're at. And when he finds us, it's not through a scolding. It's not through... A punishment, it's not through anything but a rejoicing that we're found. We were lost and now we're found. And he puts us on his shoulders and he carries us back to where we need to go. And that's the heart of God, that's the heart of Jesus, to be able to go after us in that state. Verse 7, it says, Likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. The application is plain. There is joy in heaven when the lost are found and they come to repentance. Even though there may be no joy among the Pharisees, there is joy in heaven. As I study the Bible and I look at what people are doing in heaven, in heaven I understand that there's a perspective that we don't have. In heaven, I understand that illumination is greater than life on earth. Are we rejoicing when the lost are found? Is it something that does something deep within us, not contrived or not just, I don't know, something we have to muster up, if you will? And if there's not, why wouldn't there be? There could be a lot of reasons, but why wouldn't there be? The heart of the Father is to rejoice when the lost are found. There is literally a party being thrown in heaven when the lost come home. And so that should do something deep within us that, oh yeah, woo! I like that. Lost are being found and we rejoice with God and the angels in heaven because I know they're doing it right now. If that is not taking place, ask yourself why. Check yourself. Is life so overwhelming? Has it so consumed you that life on the temporal plane is greater than the eternal? The vertical is more important, or the horizontal is more important than the vertical. Those are things that you have to ask yourself. When I study the book of Revelation and I see the angels bowing down to worship Jesus, they have a perspective that, that we don't. Do I bow down To worship Jesus. Again, having a different perspective. He goes on in the second parable with the lost coin. And he writes in verse 8, Or what woman having ten silver coins if she loses one? If the shepherd was interested in one in a hundred, it makes sense that the woman would be interested in one in ten. There's this instinct within us that... We go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs when something is lost, as opposed to in our possession. You ever lose your keys and got to get somewhere? So we were in Costa Rica, and I didn't know where I put my passport. So I, my job, my, my only job, for the most part, besides drive everywhere, was to make sure that I keep the passports. And they were misplaced or lost or gone for a moment, and I was freaking out. At the lost passport. Lord, I know I look dark like a native, but oh, I don't want to live in Costa Rica. I don't even know where the embassy is. What do I do? Where's my passport? You know, all these thoughts start coming to mind and we find the passport. Yay, okay, we're going to America again. Yay. But something's lost and God is concerned and he's not going to rest until he finds it. He's going to illuminate this coin. I'm I'm just picturing this woman, right, lifting up cushions on the couches and just the flashlight is just searching, and that's the heart of God. In verse 9, he says, Rejoice with me. We don't often think of God as rejoicing, but this passage tells us that he does, and in what circumstances. Let me read you Isaiah 62, verse 5, and see the heart of God. Isaiah 62, verse 5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In Zephaniah 3.17, the Bible says, The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I I don't know if you ever picture God as smiling. And what it is that makes him smile. But you make God smile. You are the object of his joy. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that you are his his little piece of art. His workmanship, poema in the Greek. And he's doing a work and when he looks down at you, he doesn't look down and frown. He, He doesn't look down at anything but joy as he sees you. If you study the Old Testament and you see the mistakes and the humanity and the faults and all the bad stuff within all of the patriarchs and the individuals in the Old Testament, follow them into the New Testament and where is it at? It's not there. Under grace, God doesn't hold any of that towards you. He doesn't see it. And it's hard for us to imagine that, to to think about that, that when God looks upon you, he looks upon you, and he rejoices in the work that is taking place because he's doing that work. He's doing a supernatural work from the inside out, and he sees you, and there's joy with God. In verse 10, the application is simple. There is joy in the presence of God over one sinner who repents. So we jump to this now... If the first one depicts uh, our relationship with Jesus as the shepherd, the second one, our relationship with the Holy Spirit who illuminates and seeks until he finds, this third one of the Father depicts our relationship with the Father. There's so many things to draw out there. And again, I think as you study in the Bible the characteristics of the Father as they relate to you, They're so different than, I don't know, what we think sometimes and what we imagine. And wherever that confusion or those differences come from, get in touch with studying so that you can see that God is madly, madly, madly in love with you. It's an incredible thing to behold. In verse 12, the son asked to give me the portion of goods the Father clearly illustrates God's love. His love would allow rebellion and would respect man's will. Doesn't happen on earth a lot. If we have rebellious children, we want to see those rebellious children dealt with. And we nag and let them know until we're blue in the face. In this case, The son says, give me the goods. And the father acquiesces. Knowing the result of what's going to take place. But says, son, if this is what you want. Daughter, if this is the direction that you want to take your life. I respect your decision. I respect the fact that I gave you a free will. I just find that pretty incredible the father more than knew what would happen to the son, but allowed him to go his course nonetheless. We either want to keep, <laughs> it was Mark Twain who said, parents, if you have any kids, raise them to 13. When they're 13, become teenagers, put them in a pickle barrel. Just put them in a pickle barrel and feed them through the knot hole. And then when they become, I think he said 17, plug the knot hole. different perspective than God. As you watch the son, and the word prodigal, it means nothing more than wasteful. um, It's wasteful living. And again, the father knows what's going to take place. But I find it interesting right there in verse 16. At the end of the verse, you'll notice it says, no one gave him anything. So he finds himself at the end at the end of his rope, at the end of his struggle, at the end of his situation, in a pig's pen, feeding unclean animals as a young Jewish boy, all out of money, all out of friends. When the money went, the friends went. So the party is done, and he finds himself in that place where he recognizes, my father's slaves have it better than me. And just that little phrase at the end of that verse, no one gave him anything. If somebody were to support this prodigal in his prodigal life, he would delay the day that he came to himself and got right with God. And so I think we need to be careful in the lives of individuals that we can help. Are we helping against God's will? Are we helping people who need to come to the end of themselves, who need to recognize that it's against God only that we sin? And I need to get right with God before I do anything else. And so I just, I found that little section right there interesting. In verse 20, he rehearses his speech. He's coming back. And the Bible says, But when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. The father had love that waited and never forgot the one who was loved even when he was away. It was a love that fully received, not putting the son on probation. He gladly accepted him back in that moment. How passionately did the father receive the son? That word kissed him is emphatic in the Greek. He kissed him repeatedly. In verse 22 and 23, the Bible says, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. None of the four things brought to the son were necessities. They are all meant to honor the son and make him know he was loved. The father does much more than meet the son's needs. So where do you get this idea that God is mad? Where do you get this idea that God is vindictive? Where do you get this idea that God punishes? As a child of God, as a Christian, you will never, ever be punished for your sin. Jesus hung on the cross, punished on your behalf. So you will never be punished. You will be chastened. You will be disciplined. You will reap what you sow, but you will never be punished by God. So anytime there's a temptation to hold, withhold, not run to God, where does that come from? That comes from your flesh or that comes from the enemy, but it doesn't come from the heart of God. We can always run to the feet of God. I find it interesting in verse 12, uh, the younger son had two petitions. In verse 12, he says, Father, give me a request that showed rebellion. This request made him poor and destitute. And yet in verse 19, he said, Father, make me like one of your hired servants, a request that showed submission. This request request made him rich and loved. The Bible says in the book of James that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. In Psalm 51, it says, A broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. And so again, if you're ready... To come to the Lord in submission, in wanting his will for your life, you got nothing to be afraid of. We see the second son in this whole story. He doesn't even call his brother his brother. He says, when this son of yours wasted your money with harlots and all this loose living, and now he comes home. And there's an exaggeration. He says, never twice. You've never thrown a party for me and my friends, you've never, I've never betrayed you or or disobeyed you, whatever he says. And so a point of exaggerations. But what is the parable teaching? The older son is the Pharisees in the story. And they're having a difficult time with sinners and tax collectors coming to Jesus and Jesus receiving them. And so we see a lost sheep, we see a lost coin, we see a lost son. And then we see the application. The older brother is a picture of the Pharisees. It says, But he was angry in verse 28 and would not go in. The older son was very obedient, yet very har- far from the father's heart. He will not even see his younger brother. The older brother is a perfect picture of the heart of the Pharisees who were angry that God would receive the lost multitudes coming to Jesus. And I think herein lies a key to the heart of Jesus as these sinners are glad to come and hear him. These sinners are glad to come and be able to sit under his teaching. And yet, did they want to go to the Pharisees? They went against the Pharisees, the sinners of Jesus' day. But they knew that there was no way that they can match up to their lives. They were the picture of perfection as the law related. But what was the truth? Their hearts were far from God. And so if we think that we have to be perfect so that people will come to Jesus, then we liken ourselves closer to Pharisees than we do actual disciples of Christ. Your life should be an example. You should be a light. You should be salt. But you're not the Savior. We need to point people to Jesus. Jesus. And I think it's a greater example when we mess up that we can run to the feet of our father and he receives us and accepts us than we pretending for people that our lives are perfect. And that's a trap. So in this struggle that I have of watching religious leaders in our culture, me included, closer to Pharisees than Jesus, More like religious leaders in the first century than the reality of what's taking place. How many people are flocking to churches to be able to hear truth and the love of God in our culture? Not very many. How will this culture be reached for God? Only when we study and get to learn and begin to understand the heart of the Father. He's not mad at people, God's not mad at people, He doesn't condemn. But religious people are so condemning. They're so pharisaical. They're so unlike Jesus. Christian, Christ-like, we're so unlike Jesus. We study him, we love him, we worship him, we like, whoa, he loves me so much, he loves me so much, and then we can't translate that love to a lost culture. We're so judgmental. And I think the only way we're going to get it is to spend time with God. And to have him do it supernaturally through us. I always struggled with that scripture, esteem others better than yourself. I always just say, Lord, they're not better than me. How am I going to love people that aren't better than me? You're telling me to love them, esteem them as better than yourself. And God began to show me, you're a Pharisee at heart. Everybody has something to teach you, everybody is created in the image of God. And there's something there that you can learn if you would humble yourself and see that you're not all what you think you are. And then in the breaking down of that that barrier that holds us back from God, that thing that doesn't let us connect with God the way Jesus was able to connect with his Father, did Jesus ever compromise when the multitudes and the sinners came to him? Did he ever let down his witness, his light, his salt? Not once. And yet they were attracted to him. Jesus would say of himself in John chapter 3, neither do I condemn you. No, that's John chapter 8. John chapter 3, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But condemnation doesn't come from God. So it's John chapter three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not sin or would not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then he says, this is the condemnation. God's not condemning. The condemnation is people love their darkness rather than light. Can we spend time in the presence of sinners and tax collectors and people that we look at with disdain because of their lifestyle long enough to be able to be a light for them and love them with the love that comes from the Father? And I believe that's the only way we're going to be able to reach people. We're not going to be able to reach people back like in the 70s when it was all just crazy and hardcore for Jesus and then you go into the 80s and you just watch Christianity in America do its thing. Religion as usual is not the way it's going to be done. It's going to be done with an acknowledgement that we don't have the answers but God does. We are not the answer but God is. And the things that make us uncomfortable, we have to ask ourselves, why are we so uncomfortable with those things? Is it a righteous indignation or is it a self-righteousness? Because there's a big difference between the two. I'm on a soapbox. Each scene illustrates a different way of being lost. Number one, the sheep was lost by foolish wandering and so are many people today. Number two, the coin was lost by what someone else did And we can say that there are things that have contributed to our lives that through no fault of our own, we find ourselves lost. We find ourselves outside. We find ourselves away. For sure, we inherit this sinful nature from Adam. And number three, the son was lost because of rebellion. And a rebellious departure required a submissive return by the lost one. The main point is clear. Jesus is answering the criticism in verse 2. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Let me read you a quote from uh, Spurgeon on this verse, on this chapter actually. Spurgeon writes, The truth here taught is just this, that mercy stretches forth her hand to misery, that grace receives men as sinners, that it deals with demerit, Unworthiness and worthlessness, that those who think themselves righteous are not the objects of divine compassion, but the unrighteous, the guilty, and the undeserving are the proper subjects for the infinite mercy of God. In a word, that salvation is not of merit, but of grace. And until we all get that understanding, of grace, but not just for us, but for everyone around us, everyone that we come in contact with. That God is about grace, He's about unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor, and pouring that out upon people. And again, I think for me at least, I don't know if for you how this works, but the struggle with this idea of a heavenly Father. And this messed up idea that I have of a father who was absent and not there and wanting to win his approval and almost everything I do is to be liked and to be accepted and then to come in this relationship with the almighty creator of the universe and having an understanding that it's not from a base of being accepted And am I good enough now? And did I match it now? And do I reach it now? He says, son, you're accepted in the beloved because of my son. I love you unconditionally. There's nothing that you can do cause me to love you anymore. And so I work so hard for the kingdom of God because of part of my disability, my misunderstanding, my desire to win his approval. And he's like, I'll take it. I don't need it. You work hard all you want but you're accepted and to rest in that is pretty neat because there's nothing on earth that compares to that and when we can figure that out then I think then we can begin to show others if you're in Christ you're already righteous if you're in Christ you're already in the beloved if you're in Christ then you're accepted there's nothing more you can do he's done it all for you And that is what's going to minister and witness to this culture. Because there's nothing in the world like that. The love of the Father, the acceptance of the Father, the approval of the Father. Amen? Lord, we thank you that we can learn through the pages of Scripture and these parables that you give us, these insights into who you are your heart towards us and this relationship that you long to have with us. And so, Lord, whatever holds us back from running to you, whatever keeps us from wanting to commune with you and learn of you and spend time in your presence, Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to us. Those aren't from you. Those aren't things that you desire for us not to commune with you. And so, Lord, I just thank you so much that we can learn that you love us with a love that is supernatural, that is out of this world. And, Lord, that we would be that for the people that we come in contact with, not religious, not judgmental, not condemning, but truly, Lord, just representing you in any given moment. Help us, Lord. We're desperate for help, and thank you so much that we can learn from the pages of scripture, your love letter, in Jesus' name, amen.